Today we are continuing our series on the Pentecostal handbook, also known as the book of Acts. Today we will be in Acts chapter 21. This is sort of a pivot in the book. We have been through Paul's uh, three missionary journeys to this point, and now he's wrapping up the third by going to Jerusalem, and this is where things are going to take a very interesting turn in the life of Paul. Uh, so let's hear it from our pastor and visionary leader, Joe Rostek. All right. Amen. What a blessing. What a blessing today to spend time worshiping together. Let us continue to believe God for fresh new songs in our worship times. Amen. And uh, I just felt that Jared had such a good one. And I just want to encourage uh, Chris to add some of the flow to that, to soften the edges and make it a song so that it can uh, have a nice sweet chorus to it. But that was beautiful. Thank you, Julian. So let us look, as my brother said, to Acts 21. We're going to see Paul's last travels. He's going to end his uh, third missionary journey. His last travels as a missionary, rather. His next bit of traveling will be as a prisoner and how he was arrested in Jerusalem. There are a lot of names here. I have practiced them. I will do my best to say them, but uh, Lord willing, I will not get hung up on them today. I will not uh, fall into the trap of one of my biggest pet peeves. I will just go beyond them and keep moving. Acts 21, after we had torn ourselves away from them, talking about the elders of Ephesus, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Pateria. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board, and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. A few things that we want to notice here is that as Paul is traveling, the disciples come out to meet him. I love that they are called disciples. Uh, Christian is not a bad word, but we need to take it back to mean what it meant in the New Testament concept. A New Testament Christian was someone who was a disciple. So now we say, are you a disciple or are you just a Christian, quote unquote, marking off your census your, for your religion, I'm a Christian. And, and that's, that's a shame that Christian became just an, a religious affiliation. It should be so much more than that. So the disciples were so great at being disciples of Christ that they were labeled little Christ or Christ-like ones, Christians. But uh, the predominant term in the Gospels and in the book of Acts for the believer, the follower of Jesus, is disciple. And I love that that is said here. Then it says they go out to meet him, and then by the Spirit they plead with him not to go to Jerusalem. And we'll see this happen again with Agabus as he has this prophecy that Paul is going to be bound up there. Now this kind of brings us into a situation here that says, uh, is Paul missing God? And so some people, as we've told before, try to read into these texts the, the agenda that they have to make Paul miss God in certain areas. I don't believe that. Now, I believe Paul was capable of missing God. I don't believe Paul was without mistakes, but I don't believe we can read into that. What I take this to mean, through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go, to Jeru go on to Jerusalem. 
is that they are saying the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, knows that there are problems for you here. Agabus is going to clarify that later on. And then from that knowledge, they don't want him to go. So through the, what we could say, through the understanding the Spirit gave them, they're now urging Paul not to go. So this gives us a good indication that it's a Pentecostal handbook that even here they were having prophetic um, unctions, a sense in their spirit from the Holy Spirit that danger was upon Paul. So it couldn't be the Baptist handbook, couldn't be the cessationist handbook. This is the Pentecostal handbook made to instruct us how to discern what the Spirit is saying. And now it gives us a lesson, and it's going to get specific with Agabus, so I'll wait to get there but uh, to explain it more. But the lesson is going to be just because the Spirit tells you something doesn't mean that the way you feel about that something is necessarily right. You have to be able to detach your natural feelings from what the Spirit is downloading to you as information. And this is oftentimes where I see um, new believers, zealous Christians, try to use the gifts in a way that they have the truth, but they insert their emotion, their feelings onto it, and thereby become manipulative in their giving of the words. So when you give a word, you must detach your emotion from it. So let's go to Agabus, and we'll talk more about that in just a little bit. Oh, and then the next thing that I wanted to point out here in this part is that they, they speci- uh, Luke specifically says wives and children were there. This talks about the family aspect of the church. If you look through the whole book of Acts, you probably haven't heard their children mentioned much. You don't really hear that mentioned. And sometimes when we look to the Bible to find examples, especially as pastors and teachers, and you guys will get this um, kind of run into this situation as well as I have, is that you'll realize there's not a lot to talk about from the New Testament when it comes to the family. There's really not a lot of passages. You would think, you know, since the family is so important, there would just be tons and tons of verses about it. Other than Ephesians chapter 5, you know, children obey your parents, you know, wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives as the church, and a few other places like in Colossians, there's not much said about family relationships. Now, this goes back to the understanding that they would have had as Jewish people to the Old Testament. So they would not have felt the need to have to reiterate responsibility abilities of the value of the family. In the New Testament mindset, coming from the Jewish faith, they would have assumed if you're a Christian now, you would, if you're even being a Gentile, you would, you would take upon yourself the worldview of Jewish people according to family values. So those kinds of things don't have to be necessarily re- reiterated over and over and over again. But they were obviously family people. They were family oriented. They were tribal people as Jews, and the Jewish placed great respect upon the families, great respect upon the wives, great respect upon the children. And so Paul, all he would have to do, even to a totally pagan environment like Ephesians, would be literally just summarize the entire patriarchal system of the Old Testament in just a few verses. Here's what it looks like. Wives, and I even think of Peter, you know, saying that uh, Sarah called her husband master, you know, it's just in that sense of serving. So wives, serve your husbands, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love and honor your wives. And then children, obey your parents. Boom. It's that simple. It's really that simple. Families and healthy families are not more complicated than that. And I've lived it out now. Now, some people uh, are always going to be naysayers. So they said, Joe, that's easy for you to say you're a single pastor. 
And then when I became a married pastor, oh, that's easy. Wait till you face your first year. Then I did my first year. Oh, wait till you face your first five. And then I did that. And then wait, wait till you have your first child. And then wait till they become three. And then this and then that. And basically what they're trying to say is one day you'll be as jacked up as me. And the whole point is, no, I'm not. I will never be as jacked up as you because I follow the Scriptures. And no matter how well intending you are to give me that advice, I will uh, uh, put the return stamp back on it and say it can go back to hell where it came from. No, thank you. Return to sender. I don't want that. My family will be different than the worldly kind of family or a Christian family, that a Christian, quote-unquote, that has a worldly mindset. So uh, this encourages me here because I am a man with a wife and children. And I haven't heard a lot about that in the book of Acts thus far. But this kind of uh, little detail here just shows me how much they loved Paul. Oftentimes we think of Paul as being this real tough apostle. You know, he's kicking John Mark to the side. He's rebuking Jewish leaders. Uh, Why would women and children be around this kind of misogynistic man? You know, no, that's, that's not the way of the early church. Paul was a gentleman, a kind man. He was a loving man. He was a serving man. He, he made friends with the people where he went. He, he was a great leader to follow. And so I could see if I was in Paul's ministry, how I would willingly bring my wife and children to him to pray for them, to bless them, that we could say our goodbyes to him, just as I bring my wife and kids around Pastor Grogan or Brother Anthony. And I think about these relationships that I've had the honor of having. And I know that you guys have the honor of being in our lives. And we're, we're honored that you're honored. It's an honor, amen, to be around each other. And you get to see my family and be in my home and pastor. Pastor Jared and all the others, and it's just a beautiful thing. It's it's the heritage of the Christian, and I even just think about this as I can kind of take a little bit of a rabbit trail. I, I was looking at some YouTube videos of what's going on in our culture right now, and I was looking at one of these rappers, uh, 69, and it just blows my mind, like, to no end. It started with, with Cardi B, because I saw a, a funny video of her on Facebook, and I went from Cardi B's music to this guy's music, 69, who's these up-and-coming people. And it's, it's literally like, it's literally like, not that I'm saying they're animals in a sense, but it's literally like I'm going to the zoo, and I'm, like, looking at them going, what are you doing? You know, like I'm listening to Cardi B because the, the interview that was being posted to laugh about was on Jimmy Fallon, you know, and she's like, Brr! you know, she's making these little noises and stuff. And I'm just like, what kind of a creature are you? What are you doing? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? And then I'm, you know, then I'm like searching her. I want to hear her music. And then, you know, and then she's unique sounding, I guess, you know, she's, she's somewhere between, you know, um, you know, Kaisha is kind of like a dance singer. And then the, uh, the other real popular rapper, what's the rapper girl? Uh, Nicki Minaj, yeah. So she's somewhere like between like a, I don't know, kind of like a, a modern singer, rapper thing. I don't know. I'm trying to d- discern it myself. And then, and then I see 69, you know, this guy, dude. He's like this Latino guy with all of these black people around him saying the N-word the entire time. And I'm just like wondering, how is this guy even getting away with this? You know what I'm saying? Not to say like, like I just look at color, but it's just so, just so unique to see one Latino, all black guys around him, and he keeps saying the N-word. He sounds like an older version, I mean a newer version of like a DMX or something, like straight violence, like throwing up all these gang, these gang colors and then signs and everything. And, and, but he looks like, he looks like, as everybody says, like he's a clown that ran into a Skittles factory, you know? And, and, and I'm just, I'm just literally just looking at him going, I, I just don't understand you. I don't get you. And I know I'm not that old because I listen to music that's still relevant for today. 
and I have respect for different, you know, different artists, but I, but I just don't get it. And the reason why I bring this up is because you can almost feel like the world is literally, and it, the Bible says it, is literally on a whole different path. It's in a different direction, and you will feel like that sometimes. But where you will find your safe space, where the kingdom of God will be the most realist to you, will be in your home. My home, my house, is literally a microcosm of the kingdom of God. The, the, the manners that happen around the table, I believe, will be like the Lord's, the Lamb's Supper, the, the, the Supper of the Lamb. The, the way that we honor each other, let each other finish and talk. The justice that is done when they do something wrong. There's swift justice given, you know. And it's fair and it's dealt out, you know, honestly and justly to them, you know. And I just think of like, this is the kingdom of God where songs are sung at the dinner table. And at, at the end of last night's dinner, we're singing songs, and there's always time for one more. There's one more. Oh, Dad, can I pick the song, you know? And then my son, Lucas, he's like, the one that says Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost, the one that says that. And we can't remember. We're like, which one says Holy Ghost? And then all of a sudden I get, oh, the praise God from. He's like, yes, that one. That's the one I want to sing. The kingdom of God is among us. And it's, and it's there. And not only is it there in the family, but then it's among our plural families as the other families come together. And Chris's family comes over to my house or I go over to his house. And Jared's family comes. There we are safe. There we love and honor each other. There there's no, there's no worry of what color you're wearing. There there's no perversion. There there's no uh, fighting. It's, it's joy. Do you guys get what I'm saying by that? And you can feel like you're, you're an alien and the Bible actually calls us that too. That's another way of saying it. Instead of saying like it feels like you're going to the zoo, you feel like you're an alien that's passing through a strange land, that you're not really from here, that there's something that, that, that doesn't feel right about you being here. Like you, you are made for another place. You're made for another way of doing things. And uh, let me just go here to watch a bunch of cult documentaries on uh, Netflix. And so I watched, I watched about the Rajneeshis. I watched um, about a perverted cult in California. It was called Holy Hell, the documentary. I've already watched the Jim Jones one. I watched the Children of God one. I watched about three cult documentaries. And all of them had this in common. They were all trying to put in their commune this sense of what, we feel in our family. But they were trying to do it in a way that was without the morality of the Bible. So instead of just, you know, having one wife and loving on your wife, they began to have sex with all each other's wives and orgies in the one place, Rajneesh, Rajneesh uh, cult, that had almost 10,000 people living on a commune. It was the largest commune in America's history. It was just mind-blowing. And it just shows you what people will do when they believe in something. And it really convicted me. Like all these people say they won't do this and that. These people dedicated their entire life. They were professionals. They were architects. They were lawyers. They were doctors. They literally moved out to the middle of nowhere in Oregon and relocated 10,000 of their, their lives, built in the middle of Oregon's wilderness, roads and highways, and all for free. They paid, they actually gave the money to Rajneesh that they would make in their secular jobs and volunteered all of their time. Architects, I'm telling you, man, designed a city. Now, thank God, after that cult fell apart, uh, Christ, not Christ for the nations, but um, one of these uh, organizations, find out who took Ranish's uh, property over. Christian group buys Ranish, can, uh, Rajneesh Commune, R-A-J-N-E-E-S-H, something like that. And I think it's um, 
the campus clubs. Uh, what's the one that Bill Bright led up? Yes, that one or another group bought it. And anyways, my point is, is there's something beautiful. There's something beautiful about imagining the kingdom of God coming upon the earth. There's something beautiful in that. And there's something beautiful in understanding what we do when we come together as the church. But we are not, we are not, and I repeat this, we are not to believe in escapism and go run away somewhere and design our own utopia. We are to be here with them. We are to be the weed among the weeds. What group was it? Young Life, there you go, thank you. Young Life bought their property. And uh, thank God for that. So church wins again, amen? <clears throat> we win. So this, this idea of I want more of that is awesome, but you don't do it by running and escaping and then and creating a culture where you, you close your eyes to the outside world, almost like what we saw in the Black Panther and uh, Wakanda, right? You don't, do, you don't close your eyes off to the world around you. you that's, that's not good. And so what we have to understand is we're here to impact the world. The Bible literally says we're like yeast in the dough of the world, and we're working our way through every part of it. And, and through that, working our way through the culture, we see what happens to Paul now. He's going to eventually get arrested. He's going to die eventually. Uh, these disciples are going to be killed. They're going to kill us. And it's the same thing. Um, uh, they're, they're going to kill us in the end times, as I was going to say. So that it will get worse before it gets better in the, in the, in the big picture sense. Though I feel, and in some small ways, it can get better. Like for Chicago, we can experience revival, and we can have that for a time. But in the end time sense, it's not going to last. Eventually, people are going to want to have their own way. I'm just believing that we can see another move of God. Just like there's been one great awakening, I believe there can be another great awakening. There was a second. I believe there can be a third. Amen? Amen? Excuse me. So that wives and children just spoke to me right there. Amen. All right, let's go to number, verse number seven. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Palamaeus, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven who had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now, when it says he was one of the seven, Joe B., what was he one of the seven of? Exactly. One of the first deacons. Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7 says he was one of the first deacons. Now, notice how it says he's not only a deacon, but he's also an evangelist. So is there a contradiction? No. As we've taught before, there are two main offices in the church, elder and deacon. And Jared wanted to retract what his, uh, key, uh, what his uh, strong study found on deacon. There are actually two separate words for minister or deacon in the New Testament. So there are two separate words. And uh, he had only looked at the strongs, and I had rechecked because I thought there was another one, and I rechecked, and he wanted to make sure he retracted that. So we get it on the record. There are two, which is kind of fitting the pattern. There are uh, two words for elder, there are two words for bishop, and now there are two words for deacon, okay? And there's two words for pastor. It just seems like they use these things interchangeable. But the point is here, there's not a contradiction. You can be an evangelist and you can be a deacon. How? If you see elder and deacon as an office, as the position that God appoints you to through the qualifications that God gave the church, eventually written down by Paul in 1 Timothy and Titus. If you do those things, then you can be in the office of an elder or deacon. But where does the evangelist gift come from? Or where does the ability to be an evangelist come from? 
Ephesians chapter 4 says these are gifts given to the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And as I said before, it says to each one he's given these gifts as the Spirit wills. So I believe every believer has at least one or more of these ministerial gifts because everybody has a part to play in the body of Christ. Um, there are no big eyes and little U's in the Christian faith, so Christian has just as an important role to play as I do. Now, it, it may not seem that way right now, but we're only looking at a couple hours once a week. But as his life grows and develops, what we did here will not be the definition of his life. Let's say he lives to be 80 years old. He will have been trained for this amount of time, and then what, 60 years, he will have been himself an elder, and then using the gifts that God gave him to be a pastor, a teacher, a prophet, etc. And And what we see here is that this is the, the morphine of what we call the ecclesiastical order of the church, and then we're going to see it's going to really come out here in just a few more verses, so hang in with me. But just notice how now uh, they're still maintaining the idea of giving people offices. What's this even back up to disciples? Everybody's a disciple, so they're maintaining that title for everybody in the church, and we should maintain it as well. And then they're maintaining these offices, these two specific things that you're going to fit into, either elder or deacon, and we've seen that already that Paul's appointing elders, right? Like, so elders are there, deacons are there, and then now we see these gifts start to come in. Evangelist is here, and then we go to chapter uh, verse 10, and it says, a prophet named Agabus came from Judea. So what would I assume about uh, Agabus if he's a prophet in the church? Now knowing the, the ecclesiastical order of gifts and offices, if I see he's recognized here as a gift of a prophet, what would I assume about him? He's an elder or a deacon. Exactly. And it's a good assumption because that's how the church is being raised up. Another thing that's amazing here before we get to, to Agabus is that uh, Philip has four unmarried daughters who prophesied. This is an amazing fact right here. This encourages me just so much. How many daughters do I have? Four daughters. Come on, somebody. Four daughters and the second boy is in the womb right now. Amen. Titus, amen, Titus, he's coming. And so this is amazing for me, and I feel I have the gift of an evangelist, and I like to serve the apostles. Maybe this can be an example for me, and I, and I certainly believe it can be for everybody, but it just really fits my life. Four daughters, and each one of them prophesied. Why do you think Luke just throws that in there about them being able to prophesy? Yes. His household is saved is a good point, but I want you to go deeper than that. Go into the book of Acts and tell me why you think he's saying that daughters are prophesying. There you go. You guys got excited. That's right. Peter, quoting from the prophet Joel, says that when the outpouring of the Spirit comes, sons and daughters will prophesy. Well, we've seen a lot of sons, right? We've seen a lot of sons in the, in the book of Acts. Have we heard about any daughters prophesying yet? No. So he takes time to say, there are daughters that are prophesying too. And that's why I believe 
if the spiritual gifts have been given the same to male and female, then wouldn't the offices be given the same too? Because the offices are the only way you can have recognizable position and authority in the church. So when Philip would come somewhere, he would come being recognized as a deacon who had the gift of an evangelist. Even Peter, towards the end of his life in 1 Peter, he says, you guys know me as an apostle. I'm one of the first building blocks of the church, a sent out one with the message of the gospel. But I'm a fellow elder like you guys in chapter 5. I'm among you as as a fellow elder shepherding God's people. So is there, and I know a lot of you guys, like me, want the black and white, uh, God give us the gingerbread or uh, uh, the ginger man cut out, and we're going to do church exactly like this. I wish there was a black and white way that I could say it's exactly like this every time See, look at the scriptures. I can't. This is what we call um, inductive reasoning. It's not necessarily deductive. It's, it's what we're pulling out of the text from a lot of different samples, just like the baptism of the Holy Spirit has that kind of doctrine. There's not a place where it says uh, there's a second baptism, and when you get it, the evidence is you speak in tongues. We have to look at it like kind of a, a scientist would look at the evidence, and, and, and it's looking at the whole of the experience here and then coming up with a theory theory and seeing if that theory matches with the experiences that we're, we're evaluating. And, and that's why we believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a secondary work of the Spirit, not for salvation, but for empowerment. And what is the consistent sign? What is the guarantee you know you've received that empowerment as you speak in other tongues? The same thing is with uh, ecclesiastical order is that I can't point to you an exact place where it says there's only going to be elders and deacons, no more. There's only going to be five-fold ministry gifts, and then this is how, no more, and then this is how it's going to happen. You're going to get a gift, and then you're going to work your way to an office, and then you're going to be appointed, and then you're going to do those things. There's not a place where they ever limit that. There's, there's never a place where they say, this is exactly how it's going to be. But we do find the closest example, as I've mentioned before, that it just says elder and deacon. Okay, so those are our qualifications in uh, Timothy. So i got to look for those two offices. Tie, uh, and if Ephesians, it says these five gifts, okay. Then in Corinthians, it talks about the spiritual gifts that all these people can have to build the church, the nine gifts, but that's not necessarily a ministerial position in that sense. It's more like what we all can do in our positions. And so then we build, we build a system. We build an organization. We organize the organism. The organism is the living church of people, and the organization is the black and white structure of that. Does everybody get that? And so what I love about being a new church and a new movement, as you guys are with us, and every generation has them, and we'll see as the generation grows how we implement these things, I think it is a better mousetrap. I think it's a better invention than what I see in denominations right now. I I love the Assemblies of God. I love Church of God in Christ. I love all these places, even IHOP, other non-denominational groups. But I just really like what we've developed here. And I think it works better for many different reasons. And one day, and and I open this to you guys because you really feel called to this movement. I mean, let me just hit pause here for a second. We're honored that you're here. 
because you could have been anywhere. But God brought you here, and so for you, it was natural to be here. It would actually be unnatural to go somewhere else. And I was watching the service yesterday, and I was seeing just God move at the altars, Jason from the youth getting really touched in the second service, and I was, you know, just seeing Chris up there singing, my wife and I were talking about you, and, and all of these wonderful things. And I said, if, if you look at it from the outside, why would anybody want to be ministerially trained here? You know, it's not like a big thing. You know, it's not like you're pulling up to a big campus. There's a great big church. We're paying our interns. There's a hundred different ministries going on that are all big and, and you, know, you know, luxurious in that sense. But no, there's something special here. People are getting saved here. They're getting discipled here. And then naturally, the Holy Spirit is calling them here as if it was always a part of his plan to begin with, to be in the ministry, right? So it's not like I should be scratching my, my head saying, I wonder how it's happening. I should say, God, thank you for doing what you said you would do. Because, I mean, I am at, in awe of it in that sense, but it does make sense. If you go out to win souls, make disciples, people will feel called to the ministry. And they're not going to look at, just like you, they're not going to look at the size of the stage to, de- to define whether or not they're going to f- serve God to start a movement. And that's always been the way it's been. I mean, no one's looking at Paul comparing him to the Sanhedrin or to the chief priest or to the temple. I mean, they're meeting in homes because they can't even go to the temple. When he finally shows up there, he gets arrested. Uh, but they're just meeting in homes. Like, like Paul lost all of his dignity as a big religious figure, but they're willing to follow him. Why? Because it's not about Paul. It's not about that. It's about the word of God that Paul is bringing and the power of God. And so, I, like I said, uh, watching Jason start on his feet and then ending on his face, getting rocked with God, there, no man takes credit for that. So God is doing that, and that's a special thing. And so in our movement, what I wanted to say by saying all of that is you guys will be able to define it as you grow. As, as, as Jared has learned more and put more on the table, there is now transformation even in the way I see things. And so that's just the beginning. We finally now have been able to upgrade um, Lauren as our administrator to what would be probably the starting pay of a full-timer. So we're getting out even, even uh, first we started off with just giving a few benefits, then we've gone to like part-time, and now we're getting just about, you know, where you could say this would be a full-time starting salary, you know, and it's going to keep increasing. It's going to keep growing, and it's going to happen a lot faster as it gets bigger. So you guys will remember when we were this size, and then how we jumped to this size, and you'll be able to tell people like, man, I remember when it was just like this, and then it's the same thing for the next five, ten years after that. They'll say, man, it went from here to here so quickly. And, and I'm seeing this even right now. Just in the last 60 days, uh, four churches have reached out to us either to give us their keys or to work with them or to help them in some kind of a way. And it's amazing to see, like, man, this thing can pop off really fast. But right now, um, like, like this one in West Virginia, I just I don't have anybody to send there. It's so disconnected from where we're at. I don't think any one of our people would want to leave to go there. And I just don't, I don't feel peace about those offers right now. And, and I know they speak from a good place that they would give it to us in that way. But I also know there's going to be strings attached, you know, because to me, I don't feel comfortable sending our people to a place that doesn't carry the banner on which they were raised up in and saved in, okay? Now, for all of you guys here, by the way, let me just say this. This is our guarantee to you. At the end of your SUM uh, Bible college, you have the choice to stay with us or move on. So we'll never make you feel pressure to stay, by the way. So Joe B. and Ashley will dedicate themselves to the call that God has for them here, or we will release them to work at another church and do whatever God has for them. And we've promised all SUM students, since we started the school, it's the way it's always been, 
And uh, thankfully, we haven't lost anybody to that. Uh, I, don't, I don't even want to say lost anybody, but um, I don't even want to be thankful about it. But I'm thankful, but I don't want to feel like it's bad if you don't, if you don't stay or whatever. But uh, praise God, everyone has stayed. And praise God if anyone has to go, because we don't want to keep anyone that, that's not meant to stay. And we never, we never uh, manipulate you guys either. It's never like we're going to say, oh, you're not going to make it out there. It's terrible. No, no, we'll, 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 we'll hope the best for you, and we'll believe God that you can become paid, have the, the salary, a starting salary for a youth pastor or children's pastors around thirty to 40000 somewhere in between their benefits. We will not in any way lower what it is out there to make ourselves look better. We don't have to put them down to make ourselves look better because we don't want you for that reason. We want you not to feel scared or, you know, like think the whole world is backslidden out there to stay. We want you to sense that God called you here and you believe in what we're doing, not, not because of any other reason. Okay, I believe in what I'm doing here, not because I don't think there's other places that are serving God. I know there's great churches that are serving God. I'm just here doing something unique that God called us to do, and I'm thankful for each one of you. Well, anyways, having said that, is that um, as you grow in the ministry, the movement naturally grows. So what does a Metro Praise Spanish ministry look like? Well, Rose is growing it now with the help of, uh, of Jackie and others. And can there be Spanish church plants? Of course. When we put 500 churches on the board, how many are going to Latin America? How many? Come on, somebody. David Hogan has planted by himself with his, with, with his team, but that organization by themselves, 300 churches. There could be 500 churches just in South and Central America. And by the way, those who are in the first service, Guatemala borders, borders Mexico. Uh, for some reason in the first service, no one knew, even Guatemalans, I guess, and Mexicans did not know who bordered their, their country because I was talking about that and how God had called me to be a missionary at one point to work with people in Mexico. But that's another story. Oh, well, you guys were there for that, so you guys remember a little bit about that with David Hogan. So I say all of that to say this, that, that daughters grow up and become mothers, and that what happened to these daughters? We don't know. We don't know, but I'm sure they became mighty women of God, and they furthered the move of God, and they contributed to what the move of God became. Uh, just one other little factoid of history, both with the Pentecostal movement and with the Methodist movement, uh, I'm not too sure with Salvation Army, but I, but I know for sure with the other two, but possibly Salvation Army, I'll put a maybe in there, all of them experienced their greatest growth as they, as they came towards the 7,500-year mark of their movement after their founders had already died. So you're saying, I'll probably die around the time Metro Praise is around 50 years old, 60 years old. What will determine whether or not the movement will go on is, is what happens afterward. And, and one of the things that I've even seen my heroes do wrong, like Alessa Sumrall, and it, it just hurts me to say this because I love him so much, and I knew his son, and I've been to the conferences over there, is it, it died out. Kenneth Hagin, et cetera, another great hero of the faith, you know, chew the meat, spit out the bones. But uh, nepotism, they kept their children in charge. I, I have vowed from the very beginning to people who are like, why are you even telling me this? We don't even have a movement yet. But I just wanted to be sure they understood my children will not run the movement based on them being my children. And then we want the movement to have a rotation of leadership that can come in and come out so the president's not a president for a lifetime. Okay, so uh, I, what I want to give my children personally as an inheritance is church ministry. 
I want them to be raised up in the church, know the church. One of the 50 of our campuses, I would love for them to pastor in Chicago or plant a church somewhere. But I just want to give them the inheritance of ministry. Now, whether they do, it's up to them. They can be doctors or lawyers, whatever. My goal is to have them graduate Bible college by, uh, by the time they're 18. I, uh, my daughter's starting junior high right now at the age of nine. Praise God. I want, their, I want them to finish high school right around 13 or 14. And, and that, this is old school, guys. You go back to the early colonial days. This is how they did it. They would know three languages. They were just beasts back then. But anyways, uh, you can learn so much too. If you guys would have had the same setup, it, it's not like they're geniuses. It's just we go to school year round. We just take breaks whenever they're done. And whenever we take vacations, we let them uh, take a little time off. But anyways, my point with saying that is, is, you know, I want there to be what would be a presidency or something, have a two-year term. I like really what the Southern Baptists do. The, the presidents of the Southern Baptists always get to hold the post of their local church as well. So I never want us to step away from our local church leadership and authority and what we do practically to go be denominational leaders. And then I don't want the terms to be very long so people can rotate in. And so th- th- there's just no like lesser summer all sons and charge now. Because what, what hope does that give TJ? If my son's in charge of the movement, then what does that say to TJ? TJ's basically hit a glass ceiling where he can never get any greater than what my children are. And that's discouraging because now that's not fair. Michael Jordan doesn't get to put his son on the team and say, you're, you're now taking my spot starting on the Bulls now. You got to work. You got to produce. And so if my children earn that position and get voted in, I, that's great, fine. But, but I want there to be cycles, you know, things similarly to the presidency of the United States. There was a couple father-son things, but you couldn't just put your son in there. He had to get voted in, and then if he got voted in, he, he got to only serve a certain amount of time, and then it was somebody else's turn. So that's the way I want to build that kind of movement. And then I want the movement to be, as I dream through it, because not many people think about it, God gave me a, a time frame. To, to set for my life, and for me, I'm not going to I'm not going to ever retire. But I think I have um, into my 80s to be effective at what I'm doing. But at some point, I'm going to transition out of that. And if the movement grows faster and more international before then, then I will come out of the presidency, just like anybody else would. Uh, you know, just like the founders of America, like George Washington, didn't get to be the president for the next 20 years just because he was the first. You, you guys get what I'm saying there, and I know you guys can hear me. I've thought through this because I want sons and daughters to grow up in the house of God. I want there to be an expression of what the church can be on a large scale for years and years and years to come where people don't see it as, um, as I've had to say here, like a Lester Summerall Association. I don't want it to be seen as that. I want it to be seen as we see now the Assemblies of God, as we see now Calvary Chapel, as we see uh, the Church of God in Christ. If this was a movement, and I believe that it is a God birth, and it was meant to capture the heart of young people, especially in urban areas, spirit-filled, then let it be in your hearts. Then you build, and you can, you, you can close your eyes and dream as big as you want. So you, you are, are in no way uh, it's disgracing me or my, my desire if you dream of being the president of Metro Praise International. You're not in any way coming against me. Just like how Paul said, anyone who sets their heart on being an overseer, like, you know, he could say, like how I am, you set your heart on a great thing. That's wonderful. You could be the president of Metro Praise International because that's the way it has to be. Otherwise, it is just kind of a one-man show. It was kind of like what one generation did following one man's vision. And, and God forbid if that's all it became. 
And so we have to be intentional, and I need to sow that seed into your heart now because only God knows. Listen to me, guys. Mark these words down. Mark these days down. Only God knows what it looks like 50 years from now. You know what I'm saying? I mean, literally, TJ could be leading the movement. And he could say, I remember what it was like. I sat under Joe and these other men like Jared and Berto, and we were young, and we raised up churches, and these men went home to be with the Lord, and now I'm here in the movement. The Bible colleges are established. The churches are moving. You know, we're working around the world. He does his talks. You know, I think about that when I hear the Assemblies of God because they're a little bit over 100 years old, and I think about like George Wood, and he talks about his, his, his uh, grandparents rather being children with the founders, and it's a powerful thing. We need to have that in this movement. Amen? Amen. So let the Lord lead us in what we do. After we had been there a few uh, number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Now, once again, is that true? Yes, it is true that's going to happen. But what happens next in verse 12, is this the will of the Lord? When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. No, that's not the will of the Lord. How do I know? Because I've skipped ahead, and Paul gets a word from God that he says, I've chosen you to go to Caesar. Don't be afraid about what you're facing. You're on your way there. You're on the right path. So God confirmed to Paul this was the path. But what they assumed was, since it was bad and we feel bad about it, you know, they thought it was bad in that sense, but God was going to use it for good. All men are going to die. Don't be afraid of death. Be afraid of wasting your life. Amen? Okay? So, so they think because of this discouraging prophecy, we need to stop him. Just like before, they thought by the Spirit they needed to stop him. And he's saying, no, that's not what we're going to do. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When we would not be, when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, "The Lord's will be done." So, is this an example of Paul's pride, or is it an example of people using their own emotions to try to manipulate the word of the Lord? Sadly, I believe it's people using their own emotions to manipulate the word of the Lord. Beware of that. And that's why whenever you see me as your pastor hear that you get words, I take that serious. What was spoken to this person? What happened there at that meeting? It's not that I don't think that other people can prophesy. Of course, I believe in the gift of prophecy. I believe you can be on a train and God can send you a Christian woman to prophesy or a man or etc. But as your elder, as an overseer, as a shepherd, I must keep watch over you. And I don't do that by myself. I do that with the plurality of elders here so that we can guard the word of God. And I like what Dr. Michael Brown has done now, uh, wrote a new book on watching the, the, guarding the charismatic movement and watching, uh, it, or watching over it so we don't get invaded by false prophets and by carnal manipulative people. What is it, From Holy Laughter to Holy Fire? That's his old book. Yeah, what's this new book? Please, please get me the name of it. So, there you go. Playing with Holy Fire by Dr. Michael Brown. So we need to police to guard our movement, and we need to do that in our church. So I don't have any, uh, 
any ill against you guys visiting ministries, participating in ministries, uh, serving there, then blessing you, etc. Uh, no, not at all. I believe in the body of Christ. That is a key belief of mine, that I believe we're not alone. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. We are not the Rajneeshas going to a commune somewhere thinking we're the only ones, okay? We believe in the universal body of Christ, elders and deacons, you know, build upon elders and deacons, apostles and prophets. Thank you, Jesus. There's millions of us around the world. But here's what I do as your pastor and elder. Whenever I hear there's words, I want to know what those words are. If I can, I'm not necessarily in your life like that. You don't have to like send everyone to me. You have your 201 leader, Pastor Jared. You have 101 leaders that are now in your life. Even as you've gone on to 201, you have each other. But if I, you know, if I see it on Facebook, I'm just going to be curious. What happened? What was that about? What did they say? Because we need to guard each other from that. Because somebody could have a word from the Lord. It may, they may say true things about what's going to happen in your life, but they could use that to manipulate you. And Paul actually says here, hey, you're breaking my heart with this. You're making me feel bad, but I'm not going to go on my feelings here. I'm going to follow the word of the Lord. Amen? And then they kind of submitted to it and go, okay, the Lord's will be done. And Paul's like, that's what I was telling you to begin with. So after this, we started on our way to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples for Caesarea accompanied us, accompanied us, brought us to the home of Manasseh, where we went to stay. He was a man from Cyprus, one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. So now he ends his third missionary journey in Jerusalem. And what's an interesting thing about this guy, Manasseh, is that he was one of the early disciples. So it teaches us that that these guys who were around from the very beginning were still alive. And Paul mentions them in Corinthians that those who had seen the resurrection of Jesus, upwards of 500 people, some of them were even still alive to this day. Manasseh was probably one of those guys. So now we look at the map. We can see he started in Antioch, went all the way over here to Lystra into Asia, then went up to uh, Macedonia into Greece, and then he went down back through this way to all of the islands, and then sailed past Cyprus, came down here to Tyre, Caesarea, and Jerusalem. That is Paul's last missionary journey. There are some... Um, uh, people that possibly believe that he had some freedom in jail to travel and do a possible fourth missionary journey, but we don't know that for sure on how that really happened. But we know he had a lot of freedom in the latter years of his life until uh, Nero really started uh, persecuting the Christians. He was kind of like what they would call a house arrest. So just in case you ever run into that, a possible fourth missionary journey. But for uh, standard studies of the book of Acts, we are now done with Paul's missionaries' journeys in Jerusalem. The two prophetic words that he had received are about ready to come true. He's going to get arrested, and it's going to end right at the point he's going to tell his speech. So you'll have to come next week to hear the speech that Paul gives in his defense. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James. That's the half-brother of Jesus. And all the elders were present. This is that latter part that I wanted you to see, to connect it all together for the ecclesiastical order of the church. Now it's not even really mentioning the apostles were present. Most of them are persecuted and scattered, being sent out around the world so the gospel can go. Now the church is being run by elders, the presbytery of the church of Jerusalem, and then now they're setting up other presbyteries in those various cities, as we saw with Paul and, and Barnabas establishing elders. So now you can pretty much see what we would call the pattern of the church. Paul greeted them and 
and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our custom. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their head shaved. That's exactly what Paul did in Acts 18, 18-22. This is the Nazarite vow. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself, you yourself are living in obedience to the law. Now right here, people may say, whoa, man. See, this is the Jewish law-keeping book now. This is not the Protestant, you know, Sola de Fidea book anymore. No. What have we learned by this? That Paul is culturally a Jew because he's not going to lose his testimony to reach the Jews. The Jews who have gotten saved, who keep the law, are doing totally fine. They are able to keep doing that. The problem is if they now tell the Gentiles to do that. And so just to be clear, it's clarified as, again, verse 25, as for the what believers? The Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. And then I have there the the Council of Jerusalem's decision. And notice it doesn't add on to there, and then they'll learn the rest of the laws later. And then why do I add Hebrews 8.13 there? Because it says, These things of the law are passing away and soon will be obsolete. So I discussed this with you before. Um, People like Sam Shimon believe, and I just say this out of respect because we love each other so much, we do apologetics together, but every now and then you're going to have a different way of seeing things. Sam Shimon believes that it's right and almost lawful, not for salvation, but for uh, keeping the lineage of generational Jewish people in culture, for Jewish people to keep as much of the law as they can, to some extent. Not for salvation, but to keep it. Or at least he would say in the New Testament times that was a part of what God wanted them to do. Where I differ just a little bit is I say it was only that way while the temple was around. Because by calling this covenant new, the author of Hebrews says, he has made the first one, talking about the law of Moses obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. So by the time of the writing of Hebrews, Paul's saying how everything was fulfilled, and then it's now going to disappear. So I don't believe a Jewish person has to keep any of the Jewish laws. They could break, quote unquote, the dietary law and do all of those things. So I I look at it more of like the way Michael Brown does. Now, I know Sam thinks Michael Brown saved, and even though Mike doesn't eat pork, he doesn't keep really any of the other kinds of laws. I think he may keep a few, but uh, he's not really what we would call a messianic Jew. So I would have to ask Sam Moore, uh, do you, are you supporting like a messianic movement for Jewish people today where they basically meet on Saturday, they, they celebrate the Passover, or are you just specifically limiting this to the Jews of that day when the temple was around? So I would have to actually ask him that. And if one of you guys want to write him that, you guys can do that if you want to follow up on that. I just know as we were debating the, uh, the, uh, 
the black Hebrew Israelites, uh, they were bringing up stuff like this. And Paul uh, and, and uh, Sam's answer was a little bit different than mine. His was like, well, because they were Jews, and Jews had to do it, but not the Gentiles. But that could have just been an oversimplification. So he may see the same mark that I see, that it was them doing it until the temple was destroyed and for their missionary, uh, um, you know, integrity. So that, you know, that, that this doesn't happen. I mean, they were first supposed to reach the Jews, and if they were walking around eating pork, they would never be able to go into their synagogues and even preach to them, and they had to do these things. So that's why Paul was being obedient to that. Okay, so the next day, Paul took the men, purified himself along with them. They went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end, and the offering would be made for each one of them. When the seven days was nearly over, some of the Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stood up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law in this place. Besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place, which is a lie. He had not done that. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Now notice who does this. These are the Jews from the province of Asia. As Paul's going to notice later on, these are not even the Jews from Jerusalem. These are those same troublemaking guys that stoned him way back when have been following him around the whole time. And this is is actually an example of a riot without a revival. The whole city was aroused. The people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him. You guys can start opening up for your classes. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple. Immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, look, trying to kill him, news spread to the commander of the Roman troops. The whole city of Jerusalem's in an uproar. He at once took some of the officers and soldiers, ran down to the crowd where the rioters saw the commander, commander and his soldiers stopped beating Paul. So he's getting beaten, sadly. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. So Rome now gets involved in what the Jewish people were doing. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some of the crowd shouted one thing, some another. Since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken to the barracks, so he's taken into Roman custody. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, May I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? So Rome was always putting down terrorist movements. Paul's like, no, that's not me. I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps, motioned to the crowd when they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, and then that's where the chapter ends with a little cliffhanger there. And so now we have ended the third missionary journey right around 57 A.D., and we're coming up to the time where he's being arrested in Jerusalem. Uh, some of these letters have already been written, but the vast majority of these letters now of the New Testament are going to be written from the jailhouse ministry of Paul. And so if we look back at the book, uh, the chapter today, the Pentecostal handbook, what do we learn? No matter what opposition we face, we must continue to win souls, make disciples, so that the gospel can be spread around the world. Paul was willing to make that sacrifice. We should make it too. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful day. Thank you for taking us on a little bit of a rabbit trail. Forgive us for coming late to class, uh, Lord. But I pray that all of us will hear the, the heart today of this message, that we'll build a movement like Paul did that will sustain for generations to come. So our children's children, should you tarry, will be filled with your spirit, prophesying and living for you, Lord. May your kingdom come and will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, and we all said...
Amen. Let's give it up.